Well, I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. There are some exotic flowers that, when touched by the human hand, wilt. I feel that way about certain portions of Scripture, and I feel that way about John 17, what is usually called the high priestly prayer. And I've been reading this, I don't know, over and over in different translations for a good while now, and it, to me, it is the Holy of Holies. And uh, my great fear is that putting my human hand to it, uh, that this beautiful exotic flower of Scripture might wilt. But it's in there, and uh, I'm going to take crack at it. I want to read tonight first John 17, verses 1 through Eight. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you had given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Time. There are two ways that we think about time or express time. There is chronological time, which is simply the movement of time, which is how we think of it most often. And then there is what uh, some theologians call concrete time or reality time, which the New Testament has a word for Kairos, which is also translated time, but it is different. Chronos, from which we get our word chronology, is time in a straight line, the duration of time, the passing of time. I watch my watch, and you watch your watch, and we're aware of the passing of time. And then there is that Kairos, or concrete time, which means not the passing or duration of time, but a special time characterized by some special significance. It is a time of opportunity or a time of fulfillment. 
a time when a decision must be made. Now, we use this idea a great deal when we talk about, and Alistair this morning talked about the times in which we're living. He wasn't talking about chronological time. He was talking about the characteristic of the days in which we are living. We say the time has come, and often we're not referring to chronological time, but we're referring to it's time now for us to do something about this situation. And so there is that chronological time, and then there is that kairos time, and when they finally meet, you have what I call a critical hour. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the New Orleans Baptist Seminary uh, in New Orleans, amazingly, and uh, teaching a workshop, and one of the uh, other uh, fellows that was there, Dr. George Guthrie from Union University, asked to uh, take me to dinner that night with he and his family. And uh, he got directions on where to go to this restaurant. And, uh, but uh, directions are not always, you know, good directions. And uh, so we were on Highway Interstate 10, and we, it was obvious in a little while we had missed our cutoff because of those of you that are familiar with the New Orleans area, you, you, you know that Pontchartrain Bridge? And we found ourselves on the Pontchartrain Bridge, which chronologically is a long time. And we thought, well, there'll be an exit up here somewhere, but there isn't. I mean, you go and you go and you go and you go and you go. And I was hungry and I was hungry. And I was conscious of chronological time passing. And so we made small talk and everything, and George was apologizing and all of this. And I don't know how long we'd gone. It seemed like we must have gone 30 minutes. I'm sure it wasn't that long, but, uh, you know, uh, a minute of pain is a lot longer than a minute of pleasure. And uh, uh, so after a while, we saw a sign that said up two miles there was an exit. Now we'd entered into Kairos time, entered into a special time. I said, George, don't you miss that. Boy, we got in two miles. It's coming up. Let's keep our eye on it or we'll go forever on this bridge. And finally, we came to that, and when we came to that, that was the critical hour. Now is the time to take the exit. So you have this chronological passing of time, the duration of time, but then you have those special moments of time, moments of significance or moments of decision, moments of opportunity. For instance, if I had a blackboard tonight, I could draw a straight line up here, say this is chronological time of history from the beginning till 1998. But I might put here a circle and say, this is the uh, uh, invasion of Great Britain by the Normans. That's a Kairos time. And then over here is Magna Carta 1215. That's a Kairos time. That's a significant time. And then you might put World War I or the Civil War or the assassination of Kennedy. You see, in the chronological time, you're going to have those special times that are characterized by sometimes violence or characterized by opportunity, but recognizing that it is a significant time. 
And as I said, once that chronological time hits that kairos time, the issue is a critical hour. And that's the occasion for Jesus offering this prayer. For he says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, it's interesting. You could actually divide the Gospel of John up into these two divisions, not yet and now. Before his time was, his hour was, and when his hour was. And John has a lot to say about this matter of the hour coming or the hour having not yet come. For instance, if you go back to the second chapter of John, there's the wedding feast at the Canaan, and you remember Jesus' mother asked him to produce some wine, and in verse 4, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 7, verse 30, uh, then they tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. The reason that they couldn't take hold of him and seize him was his hour had not come. You'll find the same idea in chapter 8, verse 20. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasure of the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Then there is a dramatic change in John chapter 12. In verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And in verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now suddenly, the hour has come. And when did that hour come? When the Gentiles came seeking him, which I believe is, a, is symbolic of the fact that what Christ was going to do on the cross in purchasing redemption applied not only to the Jews, but also to the Greeks, also to the Gentiles. And so when these Greeks, these Gentiles came seeking Jesus, he said, now the hour is come. And you read on in verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. And in chapter 16, verse 32, Do you not believe the hour is coming? Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. There was a time when the hour had not yet come. A predetermined, a predestined moment. And until that hour came, nobody could touch him. Nobody could lay a hand on him. But then there came that moment when the hour has come. The hour has come when the Greeks came to inquire of him. And that hour has now really, really come. 
And so the occasion for Jesus praying this high priestly prayer is the hour has come. Now what does it mean by the hour? What does it mean to Jesus? Well, the hour for Jesus simply meant the time of his passion had arrived. The cross, the betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, the kangaroo court in Pilate's Hall, the humiliating agony of the crucifixion, the nameless horror of the descent into Hades. That was what he was facing. It was an hour of suffering. It was the hour of the cross. Now, we're going to say more about this later on, but notice he says, Father, glorify me for the hour has come. And we're going to find that his hour was the hour of glorification. Not glorious in what happened to him, but it was a time of his glorification. And so Jesus, realizing that now the hour is upon him, when he must face all that is before him, and the horrors of that crucifixion, when he drinks the bitter cup that contains all the sins of mankind, and it is so revolting and so disgusting to him that uh, if he didn't know better, you would think he faltered there in the garden when he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. That's the hour. And so Jesus goes to the one. Who does he go to? Father, now I want you to glorify me, for the hour has come. Now, this prayer can be divided into four points, parts. First of all, Christ prays for himself. Now, most Bible scholars uh, 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 say that is from verses 1 through 5. But uh, what the hey, I don't believe that's true. I, I believe it's uh, verses 1 through 8 because he doesn't really start praying for his disciples until uh, verse 9. And so I, I think it this way, that from verses 1 through 8, Christ is praying for himself. Verses 9 through 19, he's praying for his immediate disciples. And verses 20 through 24, he's praying for the church. And then verses 25 and 26 is sort of a summation, an epilogue of all that he's been praying about. And this prayer, as we get into it and study it, you're going to find several things about it. It is a confirming prayer, for one thing. As a matter of fact, if you go back, it says uh, that after Jesus had spoken these words. What words? Well, the words of what is normally called the upper room discourse, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. When Jesus was giving his final instructions to his disciples, preparing them for the time when he should lead them. And, uh, uh, and, and as we read this prayer, instead of this prayer, we're going to find that Jesus reaches back upon every issue that he touched on in those chapters, and he is confirming all of that in this high priestly prayer. It is a confirming prayer, but it's also uh, what I would call a circular prayer. Now, uh, Jesus uh, prays, how can I say this and sound reverent? Jesus prays in circles. 
But that's the way John is. That's the way John writes. First John, the epistle of First John, is a circular letter. Uh, he, uh, the main three elements there are love, righteousness, and faith. But he'll talk about them in uh, different every chapter. He'll come back. You think, well, he's finished with that, but no, he comes back. But every time he comes back. It has a wider scope and takes in more meaning. And it's the same way with this high priestly prayer. Every time Jesus prays, he'll come back again to a subject that he's already prayed about. But this time, it encompasses a wider scope and embraces wider material. But most of all, this is a teaching prayer. This is, as you know, the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And it is recorded. It is recorded. Jesus prayed before his disciples out loud. Why? Because this was a teaching prayer. And his disciples were meant to overhear it and record it so that you and I can read it and study it. And I tell you, as I have delved into this chapter, I, I, I have just been overwhelmed by the teaching. The rich teaching that is found in this chapter. Now tonight, what I want to do is to see just first what it teaches us about Christ. What it teaches us about Christ. Christ in this prayer is revealing so much about himself. And let's look at that. First of all, this prayer teaches us and reveals to us Christ's preexistence with the Father. Christ's preexistence with the Father. You'll notice uh, he comes on down and he says in verse 5, So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. He said, I'm asking now that you restore me to the glory that I shared with you before the world existed. In other words, Christ here is enunciating his pre-existence with the Father. Of course, the great text on that is John 1, 1, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. He coexisted with God. He's co-eternal with God. He's co-equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's the Greek word pros, which means face to face. In other words, it defines equality. Jesus Christ was not subordinate in that position, but he was co-equal with his Father, living face to face with the Father. Now, John has a lot to say about this. And in 1 John, he also talks about uh, that which was from the beginning, the Word of life, that which was from the beginning. Why? Because one of the great heresies of that day and continues to be so is that Jesus was not really and truly God. That he was just a mere man. And you might call the gospel of John the gospel of the deity of the Son of God. Because John's burden, uh, more so than the other gospel writers, is evangelistic. He's writing really to unbelievers in a sense to convince them that Jesus Christ 
is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. You don't write his biography and begin with Bethlehem. Oh, no. If you're going to write the story of Jesus, you have to go back to the beginning, whenever that is, and look out into the darkness of eternity, and somehow that's where you start. Jesus Christ did not become. He always was. I love those words when he's talking to the Pharisees, and he said, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> Boy, that made those boys mad. Before Abraham was, I am. No wonder they hated him for it because the I am was the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And how dare this man, how dare this radical rabbi equate himself with the Jehovah of the Old Testament. But he is. Uncomprehensible to us. Or is it incomprehensible? They both sound right. Cut me a little slack here, all right? Incomprehensible to us that Jesus was Jehovah, coexistent, coeternal, coequal with God. And what a descent! What a descent! He came to earth, he humbled himself. I tell you what, can you imagine? Moving from Colorado Springs to Podunk, Texas. What a descent. But can you imagine Jesus in heaven forever, living in heaven in the glory and splendor of heaven, takes upon himself voluntarily, humbles himself, and moves to this earth. Some of you pastors think, boy, God moved me to the end of the world when he moved me here. Listen, you don't have anything to complain about. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to do his Father's will. And I ought not to complain when God moves me to Poduck, Texas, which I hope and pray he doesn't. I don't even know if there is a Poduck, Texas. Is there? We just use Poduck, don't we? Picayune, Mississippi might be a better thing, you know. Because I know there is one. I've been there. And once was enough. Reveals Christ's preexistence with his Father. But you know, as I was reading this, something struck me. Now notice, let's look at this prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. In verse 4, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Now what Jesus is saying here, praying here in this fifth verse, is that he might have that restored glory that he shared with the Father before the world existed. And yet we know that Jesus had glory here on earth. The Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we what? We beheld his what? His glory. Evidently, the glory he had in his incarnation is different from the glory he had in his pre-incarnate state. Now, the glory that he had in his incarnate state, one of the meanings of glory, glory is one of those rich words in the Bible 
that through the centuries went through a dramatic change of meanings and applications. But uh, for our purposes, we can say tonight that glory, in this sense, meant uh, to appear or to reveal, to honor, to manifest. And when Jesus came, and it says he glorified the Father while he was here on earth, what it means is that he revealed the Father's character. He manifested the Father's character. So he could say, he that has seen me has what? Seen the Father. That was his glory. And that was the glory that he had while he was here on earth. I call that a revealing glory. A revealing glory. But the Hebrews developed glory, the word glory, uh, along a different line also, uh, which came to be known as the Shekinah glory, which emphasized light and radiance and brilliance. A brilliance and a light so radiant that no one could look at it. You remember when Moses went up on the mountain and God met him and he came down and his face was shining and was so radiant that the people couldn't look upon him and he had to cover his face with a veil. little side note here. You know, when the glory faded, he still wore the veil to make people think the glory was still there. Isn't it sad? Have you ever been in a church like that where once there was glory manifested? And uh, we did certain things and said certain things. I remember I was in a church some years ago where they had experienced tremendous, tremendous revival. And God had manifested himself in a way just well, like the old spiritual awakenings you read about. I went back there about four or five years later. The glory had departed. How do I know? Because what the people had been doing spontaneously four years before, they were having to be prompted to do now. You see. They're still wearing the veil, still saying the same words, but the glory had departed. Now I call that radiant glory. Radiant glory. That's what Jesus had with the Father. He dwelled with the Father in His presence in light so brilliant. Radiance so brilliant that human eye could not look upon it. And when He came to this earth as a man, he laid aside that Shekinah glory or else no one had been able to look at him, you see. No one could have approached him. If he had come in his Shekinah glory, you couldn't have approached him. You couldn't have looked at him. You couldn't have listened to him. And so Jesus laid aside, I believe, that Shekinah glory. And now he's praying. He's saying, Lord, oh, I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. Take me back home. I want to be restored. I want to have that, that glory that I shared with you before the world existed. Oh, 
that glory dwelling in your light, dwelling in your presence. So brilliant. No finite being could interrupt a fellowship or intrude upon the companionship. So this teaches us that Christ preexistent with His Father. But it also teaches us of Christ's authority given to Him by the Father. Christ's authority given to Him by the Father. Uh, he says in verse uh, 2, He said, the, the reason I want to glorify you is uh, because you have given Him authority over all flesh. You have given Him authority over all flesh. By the way, you might want to underline that word given. That word give and gave and given appears, I don't, I didn't bother to count them. How many times in this 17th chapter? The emphasis is upon this, and, and, and uh, we'll get to it in a moment when we talk about eternal life, that, uh, that uh, everything Jesus had was given to Him of the Father was given to him of the Father. Jesus had nothing in himself when he humbled himself. Everything he had, he received from the Father. It was all a gift from the Father. And he says, you have given me authority over all flesh. Now, to what point was this authority given? Well, he tells us, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. When God came to this earth, he had, when Christ came to this earth, he had God-given authority to do what? He had authority over all flesh, over all people, to give eternal life. To give eternal life. Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment. I'm afraid we're going to run out of time. And I'm going to take the privilege that Alistair set today of just chopping it off and picking it up. I want you to notice the contrast between having the authority over all flesh and giving eternal life to those whom the Father had given him. He didn't give eternal life to all flesh. He gave eternal life to those whom the Father had given him. And he repeats this over and over again. In verse 6, he said, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from out of the world. <clears throat> they were yours, and you gave them to me. Ah, <laughs> uh, hear an echo here of election. <laughs> I'm glad I'm in a Presbyterian church. And I hope that, you know, no way around it. Jesus gave eternal life not to all flesh. He had authority over all flesh. His authority was universal. But the gift of eternal life was particular. He said, to give eternal life, not to all flesh over whom I have authority, but to give eternal life to those whom thou hast given me. And then he goes on to say, they were yours, now they're mine. Now, you know, the question popped into my mind, what do you mean they were yours? How did God get them? 
I thought that these disciples, uh, and like everybody else, when they heard Jesus and they were convicted by the Spirit, they followed Him, and for the first time they entered into a relationship with God, a saving relationship with God. Well, evidently that's not, you know, really so. God had them before Jesus ever got to them. Well, how did He get them? Well, my mind goes back to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, where God is talking to Jeremiah, and He says, Jeremiah, before I formed thee, I knew thee in the womb. And the word knew there doesn't mean I knew you were in the womb. I mean, you know, it doesn't take God till the woman's pregnant. I mean, you know. He didn't say, I knew you when you were in the womb. He said, I, I knew you. Not that I knew you were in the womb, but I knew you. I became acquainted with you. I set my heart on you. I drew a circle around you and said, you're mine. That's how God got them. That's how God got them. And he gave us to Jesus. Did you think that when you came to Jesus Christ, you were making an independent decision all by yourself without any help from anybody else? And now, isn't God surprised this old sinner has come to him? God said, I had you all along. You just didn't know it. Now, I'm a good Southern Baptist. Trouble is, a lot of people don't know that Southern Baptist theology has its root and Reformation theology. We don't like to admit it. But I want to tell you something, folks. There are two things in the Bible. Election and evangelism. They're both there. They're both there. You say, reconcile them. Not going to do it. I would if I could, but I can't. But God, and you... All the words in the New Testament, Ephesians, Romans, I tell you what, do they mean? They, he says he chose you. That Greek word means to choose out of a larger number. No way getting around it, friend. Now, you go on and on and on about the verbal inspiration of the Bible and, and the infallibility of the Word of God and the inerrancy of the Word of God. All right, then, let's get with it. The words when he says you were elect or you were chosen, it means to choose one out of many. Now, you can't get away from that. That's there. And the reason that scares a lot of people is for two things. Number one, they don't think that's fair. Tell God that. You, you, you think God uses Webster's Dictionary to get his definitions? Man, I want to tell you something. God could send us all to hell tonight and be justified in doing it. Talk about being fair. The second reason is we believe it will kill evangelism. It won't. It will enhance and encourage evangelism. You know, George Wesley... Uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. They started out together, but they broke up. You know what they broke up over? This issue of election. That's why Wesleyan is an Arminian, and uh, Whitfield was a Calvinist. You say, are you a Calvinist? No, not really. I'm just a Bible-believing Christian. 
And I don't like to be labeled by anything because I don't agree with everything Calvin says. But uh, Whitfield was a staunch Calvinist. But do you know, if you study his life and compare it with the ministry of John Wesley, George Whitfield was far more successful in winning people to Jesus than John Wesley was. I said it's an encouragement to evangelism. Brother, when I get up and preach the gospel, I know there's somebody out there. I know there's somebody out there that's going to hear and believe. But you see, you have these two things together. Jesus says, He that will come to me, I want to know why it's cast out. Of course, He said, No one comes to me except the Father which sent me. Draw him. Well, here we are, right back at the... I wish I was as smart as Paul so I could reconcile it. Oh, no, Paul wasn't even that smart. In, in Romans 9, 10, 11, he talks about the election of Israel and grafting into the Gentiles, and he's talking about all that. And he comes to the end of the 11th chapter, and he says, Oh, he just throws up his hand. I can see him. I hit my computer. I bet he threw his pen across the wall. And he just said, oh, I give up. How unsearchable are his ways. His ways are past finding out. I can't figure it out. Well, if Paul couldn't figure it out, I can't figure it out. But I made a deal with God some years ago. I decided to let him know some things I didn't know. And we get along just fine. You say, I can't reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. I can't either, but you can rest assured they're reconciled in the mind and heart of God. I'm not going to worry about that. I don't think you ought to preach elections to lost people particularly. Don't get them to wondering about that. I just tell people, I say, listen, if you've got the slightest desire to come to Jesus, you come on. Anybody who wants to come to Jesus, you can come, friend. Whosoever will may come. Those whom my Father has given me, they're the ones I give eternal life to. His ways are past finding out. Well, it's time. I've passed the critical hour, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I only have, uh, oh, I've only got one more point. And Jamal's going to sing it up anyway. If I give him this time, he's going to sing it up. Aren't you? It teaches us Christ's pre-existence with his Father. It preaches us Christ's authority given by his Father. And it preaches us Christ's submission to the Father. He said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Uh, I hope this doesn't sound irreverent, but when Jesus was here on earth, you know what he was doing? He was just running errands for his Father. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. And for Jesus, and I'm going to tell you something for us also, you know what submission to the Father meant to Jesus? And it means to us 
Self-denial first. He humbled himself. Obedience and suffering. Which is really glory. If you had been writing John 1, how would you have written it? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His humiliation. see later go on we're going to see what that glory meant and we're going to come back to eternal life all that sort of stuff the Ron Dunn podcast is available only for personal edification not to be duplicated uploaded to the web or resold without prior written consent it is managed and operated by Sherwood Baptist Church if you would like to listen to additional Ron Dunn messages visit sherwoodbaptist.net slash bookstore and search Ron Dunn For more Ron Dunn materials, including sermon outlines, devotions, and scanned pages from his study Bible, please visit rondunn.com.